Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. My name is Aaron Johnstone, and today we're asking the question, whatever happened to new atheism? I don't know about you, but for me, new atheism came at a pretty interesting time. I had just become a Christian when I was around grade 12, and the very next year, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins came out in my first year of uni. Then, the year after that, God Is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens. And I remember picking up these books and being quite rattled by them at the time. It was confronting. I'd heard criticisms of Christianity from friends and family, but I'd never really encountered people trying to systematically destroy someone's faith like Dawkins and Hitchens were, or Ditchkins, if you've ever read Terry Eagleton. And with the internet becoming more and more a part of everyday life, it felt like atheism was everywhere all of a sudden, like invisible dust mites lurking in every thread, forum, and comment section, dominating bestseller lists, YouTube algorithms, and making the news. It seems like those days have moved on pretty quick. I only really hear about Richard Dawkins now when he's being cancelled, and atheism hasn't really risen at all when you dig deep into the numbers. So what happened to new atheism, and what could be taking its place? Well, for our final episode of season one, we're thrilled to have another international guest on Deeper Questions with a delightful British accent. And no, it's not Richard Dawkins, but he's another person who's been at the centre of the action with the New Atheist Movement. Today, we have Justin Briley. I don't want to assume that every listener will know exactly what New Atheism is, because in a sense, it is a somewhat historic thing now. But it was a movement that really gained popularity in the mid-2000s. It came fairly hot on the heels of 9-11 and concerns around religious fundamentalism, terrorism. And generally, there was a feeling that religion is bad for you. And anyway, God doesn't exist, and it's time we outgrew these childish notions. Justin has been working in radio, podcasting and video for two decades. He's presented the popular Unbelievable radio show and podcast, which brings Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue, including many of the most prominent critics of Christianity. He was editor of Premier Christianity magazine from 2014 to 2018, and in 2017, he wrote his first book named after the show, Unbelievable, Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. His new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, is making waves at the moment, and I was so stoked when Justin said yes in the midst of a whirlwind book tour. Justin regularly speaks at events in the UK and abroad. He has a pretty impressive following on TikTok as well and other social media platforms where he posts short and entertaining videos on Christian thought. He's also passionate about creating conversations around faith, science, theology, and culture. He aims to show an intellectually compelling case for Christianity while taking seriously the questions and objections of skeptics. So as you can tell, he's a great guest to have on Deeper Questions. Justin Briley, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to be with you. Let's kick off by asking you about TikTok. <laughs> I tried TikTok once, <laughs> but was more or less completely overwhelmed after a few days and had to stop before my brain fell out. Um, but you've managed to find a niche in that world and to connect with people there, um, which is really cool. Uh, I've heard it described as the Bermuda Triangle of productivity and <laughs> um, the app that makes you question your own creativity. Like, why am I not making a viral video about my toaster right now? <laughs> I have a couple of questions for you on that front. First, how would you describe TikTok? And then secondly, uh, did 20-year-old you imagine ever imagine that you would be making short clips on the kind of oh craziest hip tech platform out there? <laughs> <laughs> well, tic- TikTok is, is, it can be a kind of, yeah, your, your brain falls out kind of place because it's, I think it's one of those things that have just been developed in the social media space to kind of 
train your brain to want kind of more of this kind of quick fast food stuff and it's probably extremely bad for you in that way so i don't actually spend an awful lot of time on tiktok myself and i never really counsel anyone to go on tiktok (laughs) but i figured since it's there and there's you know a billion young people using it i might as well try and put some decent stuff out onto it hopefully um and yeah, so that's kind of why why I got into to TikTok in the first place. Um, in fact, it was really through my teenage son, Noah, that I got into TikTok because he he was an early adopter of the platform. Uh, of course. And he's been incredibly successful. He has 1.8 million followers on TikTok. Oh, wow. His, um, he kind of does these life hacks for teenagers kind of thing. Um, I mean, he's now 18, but he started when he was 15 on the platform. And uh, and so he, it was during the the, the, the first sort of, lockdown year of covid um around the christmas time that no one could basically meet and see each other over christmas he said dad why don't we get some of your sort of apologetic thoughts up on tiktok and and the the third video that i made went viral it got six million views so i thought okay well there's obviously an audience for this so i I continued making them and um yeah i think i was uh, in that fortunate position of, of along with my son we were sort of fairly early adopters of it and that meant that we kind of rode that early wave where the algorithm favors you basically yeah. so so i i amassed about 250,000 followers and for a very brief time i had more than my my teenage son but then he leapfrogged me um so anyway it, it's 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 an interesting platform to be able to use but it is also kind of worrying as well because it's kind of a an example of the way in which our attention spans have like diminished over time so when i was 20 yeah i i guess uh, i mean even youtube didn't exist when i was 20 so th- that was a long time ago um and it is just strange the way that our viewing habits our consumption habits have changed so much in 20 years so that now you know if my kids watch a YouTube video. Everything has to be moving at the speed of light. You know, every second there has to be a new frame. It's like we, we, we're constantly fed this barrage of kind of, you know, moving information and so on. So I'm not sure that's probably very good for the human brain, but yeah. but it's where we are. So I've kind of, yeah, I've got on the bandwagon, I'm afraid, and, and thought, well, I might as well try and put, put something meaningful, hopefully, into the eyeballs of those kids. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and so... You studied at Oxford. You did uh, PPE, politics, philosophy, and economics, which uh, yeah has a, a, a kind of strange synergy with uh, our first episode we ever did with um, Glenn Scrivener, who also did that mm. course. Uh, were you guys classmates or something like that? Uh, no, but we were there around the same time at Oxford University, but we never knew each other, um, interestingly, until after we finished. Um, I think Glenn really was sort of finding his faith, actually, at university, so... I don't sure he was kind of particularly moving in the same Christian circles that I was sort of involved in at the time. But uh, mm. we're now good friends, and um, yeah, they have done a lot together in in our sort of adult working lives. Yeah, very cool. And after you graduated, you joined Premier Radio. Tell us the story of how and why you got into that, and how the unbelievable show started. Well, I really wanted to do something in media, um, and I'd had a chance to do a bit of work experience at a radio station during my time at Oxford, and I just really loved it, loved the environment, loved kind of the immediacy of radio. Um, So I was looking out for that. I got married to my wife, Lucy, just after university. We went on a gap year to Namibia, and while we were there, the, the director of the charity we were working for out there came over and said, hey, I've just been interviewed by this Christian radio station, Premier Christian Radio 
I know you're looking for a job when you get back, Justin, maybe you could reach out to them. So I did from a little internet cafe in this very rural part of Namibia. I sort of sent them my my CV <laughs> and they, they gave me a job when I got back. So that was, I started to basically learn the basics of radio journalism, presenting, that kind of thing. And about three years in, um, so this would have been 2005, I... Uh, I started presenting the unbelievable show, which I'd, I'd kind of gone to the, the the manager and said, "I think there's a space here for us to do a sort of Christian non-Christian dialogue thing. Get us outside the Christian bubble a bit. Help help the Christians who listen to know how to dialogue with their friends and neighbours." Mm. And so that's how the unbelievable show was born. On a sort of Saturday afternoon, uh, I would present these conversations between Christians and atheists. Um, what really changed the game, though, for, for the show was actually podcasting. We were very early adopters in 2007 of podcasting. Yeah, and that's when trend. the dynamic changed because, yeah, a lot of, of non-Christians started picking up the show um, at that point. And then feeling like there were both Christians and non-Christians listening really kind of influenced the way I presented the show and, and hosted it. So, so that was great. And, and in time, you know, the podcast did really overtake the radio show in that, in that respect and, and, and gained quite a big audience, as I say, all over the world and both Christians and non-Christians listening. Yeah, wonderful. And so over this period, um, the last 20 years, you've been able to meet and chat with a, a bunch of interesting people and you're continuing to do so with your Reenchanting podcast. Um, what have been some of your most memorable conversations and um, and what did you learn about helping people talk across significant difference? Oh, it, yeah, I often get asked this, what, what, what are some of my favourite conversations? And I often say it's like asking me to choose between my children because they're they're, they're all unique and they're all, you know, wonderful in their way. Um, but I mean, some really memorable conversations that I hosted on The Unbelievable Show over the years. Um, one, one of them would be uh, a conversation I hosted in California in front of a live audience. Um, John Lennox is quite a well-known professor of science and mathematics mm. at Oxford University, wonderful Christian communicator. I had him in conversation with Dave Rubin, who's a YouTube sort of talk show host, really. Um, he's he's had his, Dave Rubin is an interesting person. He, he's sort of had a political conversion of sorts from the left to the right. So he's kind of very much a conservative kind of cultural commentator now. Mm. Um, I mean, he's interesting because he's, he's gay, he's in a gay marriage, um, but he kind of veers quite conservative on a lot of social and political issues. But he, at the time, when I brought him on for this conversation on God, culture, living in a post-Christian world, he, I think at one time, would have happily described himself as an atheist. And he had a lot of those new atheist types, Sam Harris and others, on his show. But I'd noticed a, a significant change in the way he was sort of talking about those issues. And when he came on my show, uh, came on that, that discussion, um, he did say, well, look, I don't really consider myself an atheist anymore. I think there is something bigger out there. And he had been very influenced by Jordan Peterson, um, you know, well-known Canadian psychologist. Mm. And uh, and he, him and John Lennox proceeded to have the most fascinating conversation because often you were kind of, it's a bit like a sparring match, you know, a lot of the time, people throwing punches and defending and, you know, going back and forth when you have these conversations. But this, th this was quite different. It felt like he was being really open and genuine and very kind of, um, you know, it, it sort of really open to the idea of faith, um, exploring that. And so it, it felt like there was a real heart to heart going on on the stage. And that was kind of unusual for my show. You don't often kind of sometimes get past that sort of intellectual sort of facade, if you like, with some people. Mm. But I, I felt like that evening, you know, something special happened on stage and the audience really engaged that. And, and there was, you know, a really good feeling in the room. So that was, that's one that sort of, 
stuck out in my memory and I, you know uh, and Dave Dave Rubin in particular sort of talking about the fact he he had been he felt compelled to kind of you know investigate again the roots of his own sort of Jewish identity and faith and and even possibly the Christian faith so yeah that that's one particular show that that kind of stands out as a as a highlight for me you mentioned there were lots of punches thrown that sort of thing i imagine like even now in our environments that like with polarization increasing that, yeah, there, there's so many things that people can't seem to agree on and even be civil to one another. So mm. what did you learn? Cause this, this kind of predates a lot of this modern polarization. Mm. Mm. So yeah, what, what have you learned? Do you, do you have any tips in terms of helping people have civil conversations amongst fierce disagreement? Yeah. I mean, partly, you know, I wrote my first book, Unbelievable, because of this, even then it was obvious that the, the, the polarization that social media brings was was happening. Um, so in theory, you know, the internet was supposed to open us all up and help us to understand each other better. But that didn't happen. You know, it turned out that the way it, it ran was that it sort of siloed people off into echo chambers, basically, where you only really heard from the same people and you kind of ended up demonizing people who don't share your perspective. And and that is a huge danger. You know, it's it's being proven over and over again, I think, in our culture that this is happening in those spaces. So I think what The Unbelievable Show did was um, it helped to kind of model good conversations. And it did that by bringing people actually together for these long form conversations. And I think it's much harder to be rude and dismissive of someone if you're sitting down opposite them for an hour and talking. For sure. And so I was really, you know, grateful that we had that opportunity to do that. And I think Basically, that is the answer to the polarization we see. It's to actually sit down with people and treat them as human beings. And the problem is that because we so often have these conversations online and in these spaces where it's basically my tribe versus yours, um, it just does become, you know, it, it just does become that battleground where no one's really looking to to find truth or some kind of common ground they're 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 all basically looking to to beat the other opponent for the sake of their side so that's that that is really difficult and sadly christians and the church can often get sucked into that mindset as well what i what i liked about unbelievable was that we consciously tried to not do that we tried to have good conversations where um hopefully people would see the human side of each other when they when they sat down to talk with each other and and that in in and of itself broke down a lot of barriers in my experience and and I was very grateful you know to to be able to do that in my own small way try to go against those those kind of culture war polarized tribal identities that's often tend to to overwhelm these things yeah that's really refreshing and i think really helpful just to be reminded that those sort of settings are possible if we kind of put the work in and create an environment that fosters and nurtures meaningful conversation and dialogue with respect and dignity. So yeah, that's wonderful. Mm. Let's um, dig into your book a bit more now and kind of uh, whether the question that we're looking at is heading. So you start off your book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, by chronicling the rise and fall of the new atheism movement. And in many ways, you're ideally placed to kind of compile and share this story because as you were just discussing, you were someone there as part of the conversations, not on the inside, not not like not going back and forth with the person, but moderating in many ways. Someone with front row seats, almost like a, a next door neighbour. Uh, I'd say Ned Flanders, but that's often um, quite <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, that can be seen as a derogatory sort of thing. But yeah, not a Ned Flanders figure, <laughs> but uh, definitely a, a friendly 
voice uh, to moderate the conversations. Yeah. So, yeah, you met and talked with many of the people that were involved in the movement, in the New Atheism movement. So you say uh, that you're thankful for New Atheism. So I'd, l- I'd love to kind of explore that a little bit. Sure. But also let's start with the rise. So before you get to why you're thankful, uh, could you just share, like paint the picture, what sort of impact do you feel like that new atheism had in the West? And uh, I guess you can share specifically from a UK context if that's helpful. Mm. Um, but yeah, what, what was what was new atheism like when you were kind of running the show? Well, I, and I don't want to assume that every listener will will know exactly what new atheism is, because in a sense, it's it is a somewhat historic thing now. Um, but it was a movement that really gained popularity in the mid two thousands, around the time I started the Unbelievable Show. It was kind of spearheaded by these four characters: Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Richard Dawkins, probably the best known of the four, who is a biologist and was a very became a very sort of significant atheist figure through publication of this book, The God Delusion, which sold over three million copies. and And each of these four characters had their own sort of best selling anti god book and. And it was just, yeah, it was just a time when suddenly atheism became very cool, edgy. It was sort of seen as a sort of, you know, important sort of counter to what many people perceived as the growth of a kind of religious right in the USA. It came fairly hot on the heels of 9-11 and concerns around religious fundamentalism, terrorism and so on. And generally there was a feeling that, well, religion is bad for you uh, and bad for the world. And anyway, God doesn't exist and it's time we kind of outgrew these childish notions. And, uh, and so that was the kind of atmosphere that was sort of being created uh, at the time. And, and I think it was all propelled by the, the coming of age of the internet, the blogosphere, lots of disparate atheists, you know, maybe, and you know, who didn't know each other in Bible Belt, Texas, could suddenly join together and become more of a unified movement. And, and all of this, I think, led to this quote-unquote new atheism, to the extent that there was even, you know, the closest thing to an advertising campaign here in the UK. There was red London buses, hundreds of them, with the slogan on the side, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And perhaps you had similar things in, in Australia. But the it was, it was an interesting time. It's quite exciting in a way, quite thrilling, because um, as much as they were kind of saying, let's forget about all this God stuff. At the same time, they were reminding everybody that there's this God question. Uh, so I, I was quite invigorated by it. And, and as I say, my Unbelievable show really thrived actually on the questions and these personalities who were coming out because it it was suddenly, you know, a big deal in culture. Oh yeah, does God exist? Let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. And even though the 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 kind of rhetoric was was very negative and dismissive and and often, you know, ridiculing religion and faith. At the same time, as Oscar Wilde said, you know, it's it's better to be talked about than not talked about at all. So I was kind of glad that these public discussions and conversations were having and that I could be in the middle of that. Um, so so that's that's kind of what the movement was. Um, and it, it reaped a number of kind of converts or deconverts, if you like, to its movement over time. But I would say that I don't think in the end it, it made a huge difference in terms of, it, I don't think when you look at the actual statistics, although we obviously see religion kind of in the West and church going in decline, you know, fairly consistently, it's not that all of those people are becoming hard and fast materialist atheists of the Richard Dawkins variety. I don't think that the people who describe themselves in that way has actually shifted that much. Um, so it's not that they had masses, masses of converts to this very scientific form of atheism, but it did sort of ride high in kind of cultural circles for quite a while. And and so it was a really interesting 
moment. And and uh, as I say, I, I do thank God for Richard Dawkins because I feel like he kind of put the God question back on the map in many ways. And mm. ironically, you know, I know people who actually became Christians because they they were exposed to those questions through the new atheism. So um, I, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of glad it was there, but it did also tail off from wane quite quite quickly as well in sort of the mid 2010s um, as other kind of cultural forces overtook it. So I sort of go into some detail in the book about about the the waxing and waning of the movement. Yeah, well, let's um, let's focus on a couple of the two emblematic moments there that kind of marked the downfall. You've got the first one is this kind of prophetic uh, empty chair of Richard Dawkins on a stage. <laughs> so I'll get you to explain that in a moment. And then the second one is um, this uh, Dear Muslima letter, which kind of was quite a divisive thing that kind of ripped through the New Atheism movement. Mm. Uh, so could you tell us about those two moments, what they were, and then kind of how things started to fall apart, I guess, from there. Yeah. Yeah. So these are two stories I tell in the book. Um, But in 2011, there was, I was part of a sort of campaign to bring uh, the Christian thinker, philosopher, William Lane Craig over to the UK. He was going to be doing a speaking tour and some debates as well. And um, one of the things that I had noticed about the new atheist movement was that as much as it was strong on rhetoric, the actual intellectual arguments weren't necessarily that good. And a lot of people had been pointing out that Richard Dawkins was happy to kind of debate sort of fairly unnuanced, um, unthinking sort of forms of Christianity. But he he really hadn't come out to debate some of the most cogent defenders of the Christian faith, like William Lane Craig. And uh, he'd he'd kind of avoided or ducked a lot of invitations to to debate him. But we we tried again, you know, to to get him to debate um, William Lane Craig, and we were rebuffed again, you know, uh, with a number of different reasons and excuses. But we had got a date in the diary for William Lane Craig to to do something in Oxford on, uh, you know, Dawkins' home turf. We'd booked the Sheldonian Theatre, a very sort of splendid, well-known um, building in the centre of Oxford for this for this night. And we issued an invitation. We said, "Look, well, if put your money where your mouth is, if if you you've written this best-selling book, um, you know, saying that God is a delusion." will come and debate it with one of the world's leading Christian thinkers. In fact, we were did something rather cheeky because, you know, it was only a couple of years after this atheist bus campaign. We we did our own bus campaign in Oxford and on the posters we read, there's probably no Dawkins, but come along on, you know, October the 21st or whatever it was and find out. Love it. So, so we were kind of, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek and fun, but um, he didn't turn up. Now, you know, Craig actually gave a good, talk and he actually did a very substantive engagement with a panel of sort of atheist agnostic thinkers on the night. So so it was it was a great evening and I remember it well, but we did sort of symbolically put this empty chair on the stage with Richard Dawkins' name tag sort of on it, just to show, look, the leader of the new atheist movement wasn't willing to come and, you know, defend his own arguments. And that, that says something about this movement. Um, and I do think actually it, it did show that there was a certain shallowness to the intellectual side of it. Mm. Um, that once you actually started to look in any detail at the arguments they made against God, um, they didn't really stand up very well. It was, it, as I say, a lot of rhetoric. Um, they were very good at kind of stirring up the media and so on, but but not so good at actually defending their position intellectually. Mm. And then the second story you mentioned, the Dear Muslima blog by Richard Dawkins. So this this is more kind of related to the way in which the movement itself, the New Atheist Movement, began to unravel internally in many ways. 
basically you you could you could summarize it by saying that the culture wars kind of came early for new atheism so um this goes again to i think to 2011 again um possibly 2012 there was a an atheist conference happening in dublin in ireland and one of the people speaking was a woman called Rebecca Watson, who um, vlogged at the time online as skeptic. She was a skeptical atheist vlogger, but she was concerned at what she saw as misogyny and patriarchal attitudes um, sort of in the in the atheist movement. And she led a, a workshop on that at this movement. Anyway, um, one evening, so on the evening that she'd done that, um, they had drinks till late at night in the bar. And as she was going back to her room in the elevator, she basically got propositioned by someone who was at the conference saying, would you like to come back to my room for coffee? And she she went on to refuse that, but say, sort of make a vlog out of this saying, this is the problem, guys. You know, I've literally just been talking about this misogyny and sexism in the movement. And here, here is someone propositioning me. Um, and um, and that might have been the end of it, except that Richard Dawkins raid, weighed in um, with a heavily sarcastic response where he basically wrote this blog post called Dear Muslima, in which he compared the, you know, the sufferings of, you know, someone under a kind of, you know, religious regime sort of being beaten by their husband and having all their rights taken away and said, but you know, think of your poor American sisters having to put up with far worse being asked back to someone's room for coffee in an elevator. Hmm. It was just this heavily sarcastic kind of vlog saying, come on, let's have some common sense, you know. Um, but this just ignited the whole debate. Um, so basically at that point, I saw the, the atheist movement split at that point into people who were kind of on Rebecca Watson's side. And it included significant figures in the movement like PZ Myers, who was a quite well-known atheist vlogger as well, who wanted a kind of more social justice inclined form of atheism, atheism plus, as it was sometimes called, which recognized that we need more than just atheism. We need a commitment to feminism, LGBT rights, equality, and so on. And then on the other side, the, the kind of Richard Dawkins side, you had these more kind of what came to be known as anti-woke kind of, you know, folk in the new atheist movement who were dead set against this and felt this was all just political correctness gone mad. This was, you know, ideologies coming to infiltrate their oasis of three thinking as atheists. And so this was where the atheist movement started to, to unravel and splinter because increasingly there were these controversies again and again about what direction this movement should take. And, and you have ended up basically with these two camps. And in the end, actually, I think new atheism kind of sort of fell away because everyone started to be overtaken by these culture wars, you know, these questions about, you know, whether we should be supporting this, that or the other. The transgender issue also kind of drove a, a train through the whole movement as well, because everyone was split on that issue and how it should be done. So that in the end, you know, the, the kind of infighting among atheists themselves was far worse than anything they'd had with the Christians. And, and that, you know, to the extent that atheist conferences were being cancelled because the speakers simply refused to appear on stage with each other. Yeah, wow. So the, it, it was just a really interesting moment. I was watching kind of from as a bystander to this um, and it was coming up occasionally in the conversations, but that that in a sense was was why the new atheism itself um, ultimately kind of waned and, and went away. Yeah, so there's almost like a, a bit of an identity crisis going on. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. And just, yeah, obviously these external factors just really wedging people. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think what it showed was that 
once they'd agreed that God didn't exist and religion was bad for you, they couldn't really agree on anything else because ultimately the question is, well, what do you do once you've decided that there's no God? You have still have to kind of come up with some kind of a positive ethic for life. But that was the point at which they all fell out with each other because they had very different conceptions of what, what life is about in the end. And a lot of those kind of anti-woke, you know, side of the argument started to see, I think, quite quickly that actually that religious instinct still exists in people. They just kind of put it somewhere else. And they saw these these concerns around feminism, LGBT, trans, and so on, as kind of quasi-religious themselves, that, that these were sort of unquestionable sacred doctrines almost that, that, that they weren't allowed to basically question. And so that that kind of was is why the movement kind of went off the rails. It's because that this kind of religiosity, it turns out, was quite hard to stamp out, and 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 they kind of ended up fighting over that instead. Yeah, fascinating. So, following on from all this, kind of talking about the new atheism movement splintering, um, just as there are the the four these kind of key four horsemen that represented the the movement. There's also another four people that we kind of want to focus on that represent a new movement, which kind of comes in. And I was, I was trying to think of like, what are the the symbols of rebirth? So you've got things like um, phoenixes or a snake shedding its skin or the lotus flower. <laughs> They're trying to come up with a name for them to kind of follow on the heels of the four horsemen. And so what I thought I'd do, seeing as the four horsemen borrowed a, a biblical metaphor, I figured I'd use one too. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna, how about we go with the, the four stumps? That can be the next <laughs> bunch of characters we look at. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking here as in tree stumps with some fresh shoots. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to kind of, <laughs> that's the, the, the image I want people to reflect on. Uh-huh. And yes. yeah, I, I want you to kind of t- talk us through four key figures. So nice. there's, a, there's a bit of a spiritual shift that happens, in particular with Jordan Peterson, Tom Holland, Douglas Murray, and Ian McGilchrist. No doubt there were kind of other people in the book that you referenced and uh, a number of different people you could kind of sub in, um, like Louise Perry and uh, Penrose and... Uh, one you didn't write about, Nick Cave. He would have been a good, mm, I imagine, yeah, one that you're probably yeah. thinking about a lot. Yeah, no, no. Nick Cave kind of came into my world uh, just after I'd really submitted the manuscript, but then he he published this this fantastic book, Faith, Hope, and Carnage. And um, yeah, he's he's another interesting person talking about faith. You know, um, uh, so yeah, yeah. Lo- lots of people I keep bumping into who I wish I'd been able to include in the book now. Yeah, so that'll have to be in the next book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, let's start with Jordan Peterson. So. We'll work our way through each of those four that we've listed. Obviously, Jordan Peterson is the most well-known of all these guys. You describe him as a bit of a gateway drug to Christianity. Personally, I think he's a bit of a gateway drug to conservatism. Um, but also, yeah, that Christianity factor is certainly there. He, uh, he has a big following and he gets questions uh, happening in people's lives. Mm. So w- why is he such an important archetypal figure to borrow his language? <laughs> yes. I, I think I think he, he kind of is someone who obviously suddenly sort of showed up in a big way in around 2018. And I think the reason he's so interesting is because I think a lot of the audience who were turning up for the New Atheists started to turn up for uh, Peterson. And his message was so very different to the New Atheists. He he was not dismissing the Christian story. Um, he was taking it quite seriously. Now, he was doing it in this kind of very psychologically infused way. Um, and you could never quite nail him down as to whether he really believes that God exists himself. 
but um, at the same time, um, he was asking, he was kind of pointing people back towards scripture. You know, his best-selling book, 12 Rules for Life, is chock full of scriptural references. And when I had him on my show, opposite an atheist psychologist to debate whether we need God to make sense of life, you know, you, he was practically indistinguishable from a Christian apologist. He was really kind of making the case for for God and faith and, and its value in, in that sense. So I found him a, a fascinating character. And, and so many people I was running into, you know, increasingly were saying, well, uh, sort of Peterson has sort of given me permission to take faith seriously again. And, um, and I think it was almost like, as I saw those conversations change, as I saw the new atheism start to get critiqued within itself, as I saw that movement start to stall, I think a lot of people who were still looking for meaning and purpose and identity suddenly realized the new atheism hadn't really answered any of those questions in the end because it hadn't offered a positive ethic for life. But here was an interesting person who was saying quite significant things, Was who was saying, well, look, we do need something like the Christian story to make sense of life. We are meaning-seeking creatures. And uh, and yeah, so I, I I found him fascinating. I think you're right. He, he's also obviously a conservative type of character. Um, he's been part of that kind of anti-woke movement. I, so I think he's as much known for that as he is for his sort of embrace of, you know, religion and faith as, a, as an option. And yeah, I, I guess that's true of, you know, all of the characters you've just mentioned to, to some extent or another. There's a sense in which there's, a, there's been a tendency on the kind of conservative side to kind of push back against a very kind of uber-progressive left who, who you know, by nature, that, that kind of is often about deconstructing and, you know, tearing things down to build something new. And a lot of the people on the right, on the conservative side are saying, well, hang on, what about, you know, the things that have given us stability and, and so on? So it's natural that there's a sort of an inclination, arguably, to say, well, let's go back to this Christian story that once gave us this sense of meaning and purpose and identity in our culture. Mm. Um, now, some of them, I think, kind of just wanted to go back to that as a sort of bullock against sort of progressivism and, and that kind of thing. Whereas others, I think, are recognising there is a kind of spiritual dimension to this that you can't ignore either, that we need God, because otherwise we, we're, you know, we try and create stories that basically won't do, that, that can't take the place of God. And I think Peterson is sometimes speaking as a sort of conservative who wants to kind of just conserve something because he sees that the stability that it can bring in a culture. But at the same time, I think he's also often recognising that we are spiritual and that you need something bigger than ourselves mm. to make sense of life. Um, and and it very often, you know, people who are listening to him are coming to that conclusion themselves. I know a number of people who who have become Christians because they started watching or listening to Peterson, basically. And um, so it's it's been a, yeah, he's a super interesting character, quite a divisive one, uh, but but also, you know, yeah, very, very interesting guy. Mm. And so Tom Holland is the second. He brings the historical acumen. And um, there's a debate with A.C. Grayling that you referred to a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. What was so special about that discussion for you? Again, this is one of what, what this is another one I could have chosen as one of my favorite conversations. Um, because Tom Holland is a British historian. He runs a fantastically popular podcast called The Rest is History. He's written some best-selling historical books, including a book called Dominion, which is all about the way the Christian revolution really gave the West its moral instincts. And Tom Holland himself uh, has at various points and in conversation with me talked about how he as a sort of secular historian 
came to realize as he researched the world of the ancient Romans and Greeks, just how alien that world was to his own sense of, you know, what matters, you know, human rights, equality, dignity, freedom. And, and he kind of went on a sort of intellectual journey of his own, realizing that even though he didn't believe in Christianity at a sort of supernatural level, he was a Christian at almost every other level, just in terms of his core assumptions about life. Mm. And so he started saying this to a lot of his secular intellectual peers. And when I brought him on this conversation with A.C. Grayling, a well-known kind of philosopher of the new atheism, um, they really went for each other. It was a very sparky debate between them because <laughs> essentially I'd brought two non-Christians on to, to kind of have this conversation. So Tom Holland wasn't coming on to kind of defend, if you like, a specifically Christian worldview. He was just saying, well, look, Christianity has shaped the world and really our belief in human rights, dignity, value, and so on really come from this story. AC Grayling takes completely the opposite view. He'd just written a kind of big book yeah, of- having none of that. <laughs> yeah, a philosophy, basically making the claim from page one that Christianity had really kind of been detrimental to the world because it had sort of trashed antiquity and he kind of did all this stuff saying that, you know, the early Christians kind of, we'd have so much more of sort of the classical plays and works if if the early Christians hadn't, you know, burnt the library of Alexandria down and that kind of thing. Yeah, very fraught to, ha to have that reflection with Tom Holland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you listen to the first half an hour or so of this conversation, it, it's fascinating because it's basically just Tom Holland taking AC Grayling to task over his history more than anything. Um, and he just they just have this kind of standoff where Tom Holland sort of asks AC Grayling to produce some actual evidence of these claims he makes in his book about the early Christians. And, and AC Grayling sort of flails around a bit and Tom Holland really holds his feet to the fire on this and points out that actually this is a kind of mythology that was created basically by Edward Gibbons, a, a sort of um, 19th century historian who created this kind of modern myth, really, that that the Christians ushered in the Dark Ages. Um, and But that actually, if you go to the history books and do some proper research, you'll see that it was really Christians who conserved ancient culture the most. It was the monasteries where they passed down these these ancient works. We have the Christians to thank, really, for, for all that we do have from from that culture, and um, and then went on to kind of have quite a barnstorming debate over whether, you know, humanism alone can kind of give you these beliefs in equality, democracy, human rights, freedom, and so on. Uh, there was one memorable moment where you know um, Tom Holland had brought along a, a list of the fifty cities in the world where the last fifty humanist conferences had taken place, and he just reeled them off to AC Grayling and said, "With the exception of one exception of Mumbai, the last fifty conferences." of the humanists have taken place in Christian countries, you know, uh, with Christ countries that come from the Christian West. He says, that's not an accident. Humanism basically comes straight out of Christianity. Um, all of the things you believe as a humanist are basically Christian principles. Mm. Um, and this, so it was a really fun debate to be in the middle of, very sparky and um, yeah, remains one of my my, my favourites probably. And that's why I, I kind of talked about it a bit in in a chapter of the book where I sort of talk about the way in which the Christian story has has shaped the West in so many ways. Yeah, I, I particularly enjoyed that chapter as well. And um, that that specific anecdote you shared was a favourite about the the humanist conferences. So yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. We'll have to um, chuck that particular episode in the show notes because uh, it sounds like a, a fun one for people to revisit or check out for the first time. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's keep working through our four stumps. Um, so Douglas Murray is next on the list, uh, who seems to have a lot going on. On the one hand, uh, he's a, a similar character to Dave Rubin, uh, a gay atheist who is pushing back against progressivism and identity politics. He writes for The Spectator and brings a range of conservative and maybe even populist views that no doubt split people down the middle. Anyway, he has large issues with things like cancel culture and particularly the um, the shallow approach to truth and speech and the, the lack of forgiveness found in progressivism. Uh, and so he, he seems to have a soft spot for Christianity for those reasons. Um, so wh- why are some of his arguments important to, to keep tabs on mm. and how is he different to maybe other conservative voices? So Douglas Murray is another of these interesting characters and, and I'm, I mean, he's got, again, strong links to Jordan Peterson. Um, in fact, um, I'm going with my son, my oldest son Noah, to, to see Jordan Peterson at the, the O2 Arena in London soon. And I know he's going to be kind of in conversation with Douglas Murray as part of that. Um, and to that extent, Douglas Murray, I think, has been on an interesting journey. He's We're about the same age, actually. We were both at Oxford University at the same time. He But he went on to sort of become a very well-known sort of cultural critic, um, associate editor of The Spectator, very much kind of coming from a fairly conservative perspective on all these things. And he was great friends, actually, I think in his 20s uh, with many of these new atheists um, who were riding high. He used to have lunch with Christopher Hitchens. And to some extent, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who kind of argued him out of whatever faith he did have at one time, Douglas Murray. Um, But I think, interestingly, since then, since those sort of mid-2000s, he's increasingly come to realise in that sort of Peterson-esque way that we're we're still highly religious and we can't sort of escape that 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 feeling. And he has got this soft spot for Christianity. Um and he 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 kind of, you know, when I've had him in conversation a couple of times, he's really actually critiqued the new atheists in the end for um for trying to basically get rid of religion. And because he said, well, what did they replace it with? And in the end, he said, ethics, you can't sort of create ethics out of atheism. It just doesn't work. Um, it, it's not obvious the way people should treat each other. Just you, all you have to do is travel to see that people have very different ideas about that. Um, so he recognises in that kind of Tom Holland way that his foundational beliefs about how life should be lived essentially come from the Christian story, you know, that the, the West has been shaped by. So he's he's another interesting one. And I had him in a conversation with N.T. Wright, the, the New Testament scholar, a few years ago. And really the, the title cover of my book really comes from that conversation because Douglas Murray referenced this well-worn line um, from Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold that talks about the melancholy, long, withdrawing roar of the sea of faith. Because we were having a conversation about, you know, life in the post-Christian West. And and he said, well, the, the thing about, you know, the sea of faith is that it could come back in again, Justin. That's the point of tides. And he was talking in this context about the fact he'd been surprised to see some, you know, friends of his, intellectual peers who were converting to Christianity, very often going back to what he called the deepest wells, the sort of Anglo-Catholic, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox type traditions. Mm. And he said, he, and he kind of wondered aloud whether that we might be seeing a kind of turning of the tide, basically, that, that as that sort of new atheist story of reality sort of seemed to be running out of steam, whether people might be opening up again to the Christian story, if you like. Um and again, he's he seems kind of wistfully. He kind of wishes it could. He wishes he could believe it himself. He's not one of these dogmatic atheists who, you know, would shake their fist at God in a kind of Hitchensian way. 
I think he'd, he'd, he would love for this story to be true. He's kind of waiting for permission to believe it again himself. Mm. Um, so I find him a fascinating character. Again, he's, he's very conservative, you know, in terms of his social and cultural perspectives. But um, he's, again, a fascinating character who I think is recognising that we need something like the Christian story to make sense of life. And, you know, isn't afraid of writing and talking about that. You know, I've, I, I saw him in a debate at the Oxford Union on whether, you know, religion is good or bad for us. And he basically said, religion, you know, Christianity specifically has this belief in grace and forgiveness. And my goodness, that's in short supply in our culture when it comes to the culture wars. Mm. So he recognises that there's, we're getting very religious in our culture um, in some ways, you know, the identity politics and stuff can take a very religious fundamentalist flavour, but taking all the worst parts of <laughs> religion yeah. um, in that kind of, you know, puritanical way um, and and actually failing to to offer grace or forgiveness or a new start because, you know, original sin cannot be blotted out and so on, as as he would put it. So he's, yeah, he's another interesting character kind of asking whether we can, w whether we need to start moving back towards something like the Christian story. Yeah, great. And the final character, Ian McGilchrist. So I loved your stuff that he was covering, um, particularly looking at the, the left versus right brain misconceptions. And he says that the rational doesn't cut it, that materialism isn't enough, consciousness is a problem for atheism. And you introduced the terms uh, panentheism and panpsychism, which <laughs> I hadn't heard of before. I've probably said them wrong. Uh, but could you tell us about Ian McGilchrist and what his science and philosophy yeah. reflections bring to the conversation? Well, th this is a chapter in the book, um, where I talk about, you know, just the way in which the whole conversation on consciousness and the brain and the mind have really changed in recent years. And Ian McGilchrist is a fascinating character. He's probably not as well known as the other three we've mentioned, but he's he's become incredibly influential in his field. He's a sort of neuroscientist slash psychiatrist. Um, he's at Oxford University. He's been, um, and he wrote this very influential book called The Master and His Emissary several years ago, which was praised on both the kind of religious and non-religious side. So AC Grayling, you know, wrote a glowing endorsement for it, but so did Rowan Williams. And and what he was identifying was that, if you like, the, the West has got out of kilter, that he talks about the fact that very broadly speaking, as we know, there's a sort of left and right hemisphere to the brain. And his case in the book is that the left hemisphere, which is the bit that does most of the kind of analytical, breaking things down, logical stuff, um, should always be subservient to the right hemisphere, which is the kind of bigger sense-making part of our brain, where you see the bigger picture, it's holistic, it does the imaginative kind of um, uh, sort of big story part. And, and in popular culture, we often talk about left and right brain people, you know, the left brain people are the scientists and mathematicians, the right brain people are the artists and, you know, musicians and whatnot. I mean, that's a very kind of rough and ready kind of sketch of it. But the, the point that, that McGilchrist really had made and, and brought out in this, this huge book um, was that in our culture, the left brain is dominating. We think we can explain everything through pulling everything apart into its constituent parts. And basically, that's what the new atheists have done. They've said, look, we've looked at them through a microscope and, and we've looked at everything. And it turns out it's just atoms and electrons. And we can basically explain everything by reducing it down to these constituent parts. And and 
for, for McGilchrist, this is the problem in our culture and it's why we're going off the rails. It's because actually we're not supposed to be guided by this left brain way of looking at things. The right brain is the bit that makes sense of the bigger picture. And we've kind of forgotten that. And he says, that is what religion is. That's what um, faith does. It helps you to put kind of have a bigger picture of reality. And and so his view is that a lot of the, the ills of culture that we're seeing are because we've kind of gone down this left brain route in culture. Now, that's a really thumbnail sketch of, of a much bigger kind of case that McGilchrist makes. And But he's another of these interesting characters who sits somewhere liminally between faith and kind of secular world. And he's being taken really seriously, but he's also asking big questions about whether we can make sense of the whole idea of consciousness, the brain, and so on without something like God. And he is actually a, a theist, though not in a kind of classical sense. He, You mentioned this word panentheism. He would describe himself as a panentheist, um, which is the view that um, rather than God being kind of external to the universe and sort of doing things to it, it's kind of like God is in and through the universe. So it isn't that God is the universe, which would simply be pantheism. Panentheism is this idea that that, that God um, sort of works in and through the universe, which isn't sort of necessarily at odds with the Christian view of reality. You could argue that a lot of Eastern Orthodox forms of Christianity essentially are panentheistic in that sense. And when Paul says, you know, in him we live and move and have our being, it's a, there's a sense in which that's a sort of panentheistic almost characterization of God. Yeah, well, but he's not a convention. He's not a Christian at the same time. He he doesn't believe that God has acted in history. Uh, Jesus Christ was the son of God and rose from the dead. But he's asking interesting questions again, you know, as one of these interesting people saying, can we live without something like God in our world? So so he's he's an interesting character too. And a large part of your book keeps coming back to the importance of story. Um not in the sense of fiction and myth, but whether we can place ourselves in the vision of a particular ideology. Um, so I think you've, you've been alluding to this a lot uh, in the way that you're talking about new atheism and, and, and how it works, um, the story it tells. You contend that atheism basically doesn't tell a good or coherent story, and that was part of its downfall. Uh, whereas Christianity has had the story of all stories, which still connects today. And that's why we're perhaps seeing yet another historical resurgence, um, albeit very modestly in the West at the moment. So wh why does it matter whether or not we connect with a powerful story? I think it's because we're made to live in a story. So th there's a psychologist called Jonathan Gottschall who wrote a book on this. Um, and he basically said, you know, if we if we don't have some sense that we're living in a meaningful narrative, that there's a sort of beginning, middle and end sort of story, a plot line, if you like, to our lives, if we just feel like we are bouncing around chaotically, it, it leads to depression, anxiety. And actually, I think we're seeing that in our culture. We, we are seeing a huge spike in mental health issues. There's this sort of meaning crisis that a lot of people are talking about, people like John, Jordan Peterson and other psychologists. They're saying people don't feel like they have a story that makes sense of their lives. And they're reaching for things to try and fill that gap, if you like. So a lot of these modern sort of quasi-religious kind of visions of, of, you know, whether it be sexual and gender identities on the one hand or kind of political mythologies on the right, they're, they're kind of reaching for things to try and make sense of it, but they're not doing the job. They're not, they're not working um, as stories to make sense of life through. And that's, in a sense, why I think there is space for the Christian story to come back in because it's kind of bubbling away under the surface anyway. You know, a lot of the things we actually think about life are fundamentally Christian in their assumptions. And and I'm just recognising more and more people realising that this story, the Christian story that did give 
shape and purpose and meaning to so many people, whether they kind of realized it or not in the West, it's still there. It still could could make a comeback, you know, that sea of faith could come back in, as Douglas Murray put it. So I think it's interesting that, you know, the new atheism tried to kind of take away that story. It, it tried to sort of say, look, we can do without this story now. We're basically free-floating entities in an otherwise meaningless universe. We have to just make up our own story and so on, make our own meaning. But that people can't cope with that. Yeah, the story's a crutch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They they said they would have said that, you know, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak and so on. But actually, it turns out that people need some kind of a story to live by. And by trying to kind of clear the ground of this Christian story, all they did was actually sort of clear the stage for all these other quasi-religious stories to come in, which they're now, you know, all their key people are now trying to kind of stamp on and 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 fight. But actually, all of that shows me is that people need some kind of a story to live their lives by. We are instinctively religious in that sense. And that actually, the Christian story is the best one we've ever had that's actually created a flourishing society. Now, it's not not unproblematic. It's not that, you know, this is a perfect um, society that we've created. It's got all kinds of issues, but it's the best, it's the best shot we've ever had, I think, at creating something that people want to stick around and that was meaningful and important. And I, I think a lot of people are just recognizing that this culture, this, this Western culture with its belief in human rights, dignity, freedom, et cetera, isn't, it's not inevitable it could go away. Uh, you know, there are other competing stories in the world. There's China, there's Russia, there's there's people with very different conceptions of reality. And um, if you want this one to be the one that wins, you might have to go back to the foundational story. Um, th- this idea that we were created for a purpose, that there's a God who invests us with meaning, dignity, and who through an act of self-sacrificial love redeemed us back to himself. That, that is the story that has basically shaped our, our most basic intuitions about compassion for the vulnerable, for creating a space, you know, for people to be able to, to be atheists, frankly, you know, um, you know, not, not have those sort of beliefs squashed by a dictator. And, and I think just, I just see a lot of these secular intellectuals realizing, you know what, this is, um, this is rare fruit that we've cultivated in unusual soil. And if we don't have the story that basically grounds it, we're in danger of losing this, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I just think there are all kinds of things that suggest that we, you know, we might be on the cusp of people realizing that this Christian story, we need to, we need to look a second time at it now. So you opened the final chapter of your book with your personal conviction that we're all made to worship and we're all craving a sense of the sacred in our lives. So you write this, I'm convinced that none of us are actually less religious than we used to be. We're just religious about different things. So is this kind of getting at the spiritual, not religious idea there? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think I think in a way, if you go and look at the statistics, even though we know less and less people are going to church, less and less people would describe themselves as religious in the surveys, when you actually dig into those surveys, they're still doing quite a few quasi-religious things, as I said. Um, they might be praying occasionally. Uh, they may be dabbling in sort of esoteric Eastern philosophy or new age stuff or whatever. They're, they may be taking a pick and mix approach. They they might use that term spiritual, but not religious. So as I said earlier, it's not like pe- the new atheism converted a lot of people to a sort of scientific, sort of materialist version of reality. But, um, but the question is, I think, whether those stories are enough, can people kind of sustain themselves with that kind of pick and mix version of spirituality? 
Um, and my sense is no, they can't because actually we have this meaning crisis in our culture and and ultimately we're made for a bigger story, as I was saying. So so I feel like they're li- reaching for something, you know, they're, they, they're, they're looking for something to make sense of life. But the answers they're coming up with are, are kind of insufficient really to to create that kind of meaning and purpose that, that people ultimately need. Mm. Yeah. Another thread that comes up throughout, particularly towards the end, is the idea of, of people discounting Christianity from youth um, without having given it a, a proper go. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty easy to join the pylon when we grow up seeing the worst of fundamentalism and hypocrisy or confusing spirituality and contemplation with mind-numbing boredom. And I think it's funny that for most people, their conversion story, whether it's being converted to Christianity or atheism, it always seems to start with their views in their youth, mm. basically stay pretty untested after that point. <laughs> There's this decision yeah. um, and then the people mostly stick to it in a rigid uh, sort of way and a, a closed, almost closed-minded uh, approach to it yeah. for their adult life. So um, even even as people particularly like master their professions and their disciplines, their, their spiritual kind of uh, analysis doesn't necessarily change. Mm. So what would you say to someone who is hesitant to revisit Christianity properly? Well, I'd, I'd say to that person, well, well, if you're interested in truth, then it's always worth revisiting your assumptions about reality and testing them and seeing seeing whether there could be a different story that makes sense of life. I, I agree with you that I think most people kind of do make the decision probably by their late teens, early 20s about the way life is. And it, it is harder, I think, later in life to kind of have a radical change of mind. Um, But I do see it, interestingly. A number of the stories I tell in this book are about surprising converts, adult converts to faith. Um, There's one particular person I I mentioned in the final chapter, Paul Kingsnorth, who's a sort of celebrated author and poet here in the UK, who sort of had a kind of spell as a teenage atheist, basically. Um, But he, he could never shake the idea that the world was sort of enchanted somehow. He loved being in nature. He just sensed something bigger, something transcendent there. And he had a long spell as a Buddhist um, where he kind of, you know, was trying to sort of find meaning by looking within. But he still says he felt this need to worship something. Um, so he thought, well, maybe it's nature. You know, he, he became a, a Wiccan for a while and was out in the woods doing kind of rituals and things. He kind of realized in the end, though, it was a bit of a pastiche of, you know, Christian ritual and sort of neo-pagan sort of things. And it, it was enjoyable, but but he, he in the end, he couldn't take it too seriously. And very interestingly, he found in the end that the story that made sense of his search was the Christian story. Uh, and that was the last thing he was expecting because he had kind of had those Sunday school associations with it, that it was just sort of irrelevant and boring and just cheesy, cheesy vicars with rainbow guitar straps kind of coming and singing Shine Jesus Shine in his school assembly. <laughs> Um, but he said when he was actually exposed to the kind of the, the the depth and the strength of the Christian story, he suddenly realized this is the thing actually that, that I was looking for all along. It's a remarkable story because he 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 talks about how his wife, who is not a Christian, just came out one evening over dinner and said, you're going to become a Christian. And he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why would you even say that? <laughs> um, but he suddenly started bumping into lots of Christians. He, people who he'd known all his life suddenly came out as Christians and vicars started sending him their sermons to for him to comment on. And he started having, interestingly, um, dreams about Jesus. Wow. And he says he kind of got dragged kicking and screaming out of Wicca, but he kind of needed to be dragged out of it. 
And he's now a very committed Christian. Um, and he, is, again, is one of these people who says, you know, the God instinct is, it goes very deep actually. And, and once it's uncovered, he's suddenly just that, you know, his whole world changed. He, he's actually gone down the Eastern Orthodox route himself because he finds that's where he kind of really gets mm. the most sense that, that this is the way that, that it all stacks together. And, um, and I just think, well, if it can happen to Paul Kingsnorth, you know, it could happen to anyone. I think sure. there's, there's some really interesting stories of, of people who, even as adults, kind of do have that change of mind. I think, I think it takes a lot of intellectual humility and uh, to do that. Um, because I think it is difficult to kind of have a have an about turn um, at, at a later stage in life, but I think there are enough people out there whose stories just aren't working for them anymore, who are feeling like, no, I I, I don't know where I'm going to get this sense of meaning and purpose and identity from, for that actually to happen for people, even even as adults. Um, so so my hope and prayer is that people would reconsider the Christian story if they even if they've discounted it from youth that actually they'd realise um, maybe the version I thought I heard when I was a young person, maybe I didn't hear the full the full story. Um, who knows? There, there could be another Paul Kingsnorth, you know, listening right now. So who, yeah. who knows? It's one thing to kind of be unconvinced by your kind of Sunday school teacher uh, when you're 12 um, and to decide that there's no God. Uh, it's another thing to actually kind of engage with people like Tom Holland and to actually look at the depth and the history and the intellectual traditions and uh, mm. yeah, mm. just the everything that you're not going to learn in a Sunday school context, but the, but which is out there if you want to find it. Yeah. I, I mean, I've got a great example of a, a friend of mine who's in Australia, actually, a guy called Dean, who I mentioned in the book, who's, who's very much been on this journey. He kind of discovered these conversations I was having with people like Jordan Peterson as an adult. And he kind of ha had kind of assumed the atheist thing was probably true. He'd been reading Sam Harris and that kind of thing. But he, he just found that in the end, he just wasn't satisfied with that way of looking at things. He just felt there was something bigger out there. And he he became absolutely, you know, entranced and enchanted with the these conversations that we were having around faith. And he really does believe like he's he's been on very much a journey of kind of taking Christianity far more seriously, dipping his toe in, you know, going to church occasionally. But he's not quite there. He's sort of like, and I think for a lot of people, there's a kind of that that final kind of leap <laughs> is a difficult one because you're you're, it's kind of changing your entire worldview from from one sort of way in which you've looked at life your whole life to another one, and and they some people I think go on that intellectual journey. I feel like Dean has very much gone on that intellectual journey, but there's also that experiential element where it's about now now kind of stepping out in faith to kind of put some weight on that idea mm. and test it, you know, with your own life. Um, maybe say a prayer, see what happens, and. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think I think there's a lot of people in that sort of fuzzy middle who are kind of like I feel like there might be something more. Am I kind of willing to to go and try it out? You know. Mm. Cool. Well, let's close by revisiting your first book um, and getting a very quick summary version. Um, the book's called Unbelievable. It kind of tracks, a, I guess, a bit of the radio show, but you lay out why you're still a Christian after ten years of talking with atheists. Do you want to give three very quick reasons why you're still a Christian? Okay, very, very quickly. Um, there are three reasons for God that I give in the book specifically. Um, firstly, that God makes sense of human existence. When we look at the best science, where the universe came from, its nature, why we're here in the universe, it seems to fit better with the idea that there's a divine mind behind this universe than that we're just here by accident. I think if you're a good scientist, 
the best science points to the idea that there is a divine mind behind the universe and therefore our existence. So God makes sense of human existence. I think God is also the best explanation of human value. We've already talked about this, but this idea that there is a kind of intrinsic value in humans. I don't find a good explanation for that on an atheistic view of the world. If if atheism is true and there's no God and we're just here by a kind of unguided process of evolution, there's no reason why we should privilege humans over any other species. And yet we do. We come up with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, that makes sense. That, that in idea of human value and dignity makes sense if what the Bible says is true, that we're created in the image of God. So I think Christianity is the best explanation for human value. And thirdly, I think Christianity makes best sense of human purpose, this idea that that we're created for something more, this, this idea that seems to exist across all times, places, and cultures, that um, there's a meaning to life, that there's a way life should be lived. Again, I don't find that atheism can make sense of that. Um, uh, if people do have this transcendent sense um, it's just an illusion. It's just something that kind of is just a, a misfiring of evolution. But actually, very few people live life as though that's true. And so God, for me, is the best explanation of human existence, human value, and human purpose. But more than that, I believe God has stepped in to the human story in the person of Jesus. And there's good historical evidence to believe Jesus really was who he said he was, that he rose from death. And if that's all true, then you should be a Christian. So that's my case. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Justin Briley, you're thankful for new atheism. I'm thankful for your book and for the trailblazing work that you've done in this space over the last 20 years. A real treat to have you on Deeper Questions with us. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be with you. As we wrap up this opening season, it's fascinating to reflect on how fast things can change. Even the people who think they're the change agents and the disruptors of society can be swallowed up and usurped by the next thing. So predicting anything with certainty is a perilous exercise. Who knows what kind of black swan events are going to smash the status quo with anything but a graceful and serene display. It's been great following Justin with his experiences and his general take on the new atheism movement. Like so many things, it started with a bang and with a real sense of optimism, energy and vibrance. But in keeping with the spirit of our age, it's become yet another thing that became pretty depressing after a while, engulfed in conflict, scandal and disorder, unable to deliver on expectations and unable to really move public sentiment that much. We're all looking for like-minded communities, but even when we think we find people just like us, there's still often more that divides us than unites us. The good times are often short, the winds few, the relationships skin deep, and positive change uncertain in the long term. It's no wonder that despair seems to be the general mood many of us are vibing with. And so perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that people are looking for hope and meaning in more traditional places. In the divine, the eternal, the spiritual. I love Charles Taylor's idea of social imaginaries, which gets at how we're wired as humans, how we see the world and how we participate in it and react to it. The way we're shaped by stories, our peers, our habits, actions, our longings and our values. There's societal pressures and messaging, cognitive biases, norms, paradigm shifts, media influence. And most of these things will be subconscious and totally invisible to us. We're constantly changing and more fluid than we realise. And yet larger stories can help us place ourselves in messy environments. 
And it's important to go beyond the cerebral. Understanding worldviews is great and all, but we're shaped by so much more than detached reason, abstract theory and propositional thought. Apparently the motto of the Enlightenment was Sapere Orde, Latin for dare to know, which was in an essay by Immanuel Kant. I love the bravado and the confidence in which atheists often speak of facing our fears and mortality and the enormity of the universe with both awe and bravery. I imagine that it's thrilling at first as well, but I wonder whether it stands up to the realities of everyday life. It's one thing to say that at the heart of the universe is nothing but cold, pitiless indifference, with violence, self-assertion and the will to power at the centre. It's another thing to live that way, and it seems like it will crush you at some point. What's the antidote to despair? Well, maybe it's seeking fullness, seeking more to life, seeking hope. And for Christians, we say that agape, or love, is at the centre of the universe, which is intrinsically hopeful. And I think people are starting to rediscover that after reading Justin's book and seeing the winds change ever so slightly. I think that there's a genuine appreciation for what the Christian story has meant across the world and what it can still mean today. Being a force for good, a social lubricant, a window into our collective soul, both calling us to a higher existence together where everyone is valued as a masterpiece handcrafted by God, while demanding humility, with God knowing better than anyone what we're capable of. Christianity is surprisingly optimistic in the gloomiest of circumstances, and it's an agent of lasting change and quiet revolution. That's probably why it's getting another look in at this cultural moment. This may sound strange, with many of these characters being staunch conservatives, but there are other people of different political persuasions offering the same olive branches to revisit Christianity, even if it's from a point of curiosity. Some that come to mind are Ezra Klein, Jonathan Rauch, Elaine de Botan, and Nick Cave. No doubt there are countless other examples as well. I really enjoyed hearing Justin say that he's thankful for new atheism, because I share that sentiment. I introduced this episode by sharing how confronting the new atheism movement was for me as a fresh and green Christian. Immediately, my faith was being challenged and tested intellectually. And I think this was a really healthy thing for me and shaped the kind of Christian I am now when I think about it. I got to work reading, talking with others, hearing their arguments and stretching myself to see if Christianity stood up intellectually, whether I could in good conscience believe and have a rich and satisfying life of the mind too. And I still do that now. The more I read back then, the more I began to see that there are great reasons for belief and that this new atheism movement wasn't the first time in history where people have made a concerted effort to discredit and undermine Christianity in provocative and formidable ways. And that Christians had been responding to these same kinds of arguments for centuries. And not just responding, but making all kinds of interesting and sophisticated arguments for belief in God, whether from science, philosophy, history, sociology or literature. There have always been Christians in those spaces doing their bit to make a persuasive case. Admittedly, some are more persuasive than others, but there are good answers out there if you care to look. And so is God himself. I use the idea of tree stumps to talk about rebirth. Now, a stump obviously isn't the full tree, but it offers green shoots, and it points to a future that can provide shelter, shade, nourishment, and healthy soil to cultivate a life. We just need to recognise the branches. You might mock or ridicule Christianity, but do the work too. Dare to know God. Make him your story. And rather than following the four horsemen of the apocalypse, follow the rider in the white robe. The one who chooses to forego 
and be on the receiving end of violence, self-assertion and the will to power, only to usurp it with love and bring about the ultimate black swan event with unmatched grace, majesty and beauty. You might not believe in fairy tales, but you can believe in the power of a life-changing story. And I'd implore you to read that story for yourself. It'll be easy if you try. We hope you enjoyed listening to the first season of Deeper Questions. It's been really exciting to see our audience grow and a quick shout out to all our international listeners as well. We'll be back for season two sometime next year and we've already got some wonderful guests confirmed to continue these kinds of conversations. Feel free to go back over the episodes you haven't listened to yet or if you've listened to all our episodes, then I heartily recommend listening to Justin's new documentary style podcast named after his book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God which is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, please share, like, leave a five-star rating and review if you've enjoyed our show and get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, maybe think about exploring the Bible for yourself. Amy and I or any other Christian you know would be happy to read a gospel with you and be your guide if you've never done it before or it's been a while. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions. It's brought to you by Third Space and produced by Production Farm Studios. Until next time, submerge in wonder, surface with hope.